0: We'll get started here, very last week. So sad Maybe not. No one else shared the sorrow with me. Uh, We're silently, grieving. silently grieving. Yeah, that's right. Uh, well, hopefully it's been an enjoyable time. My hope it hasn't just been like enjoyable, but actually it's been profitable. Um, that's the whole point of why. I mean, even you know studying anything other than scripture per se. Um, it's not just for fun, but it's also, you know, hopefully that it's profitable. So that has been my hope with this class. Um, I, I feel like over the last nine weeks, you know, I've been kind of hyping up the Puritans quite a bit. And so what I want to do kind of today is kind of bring them back down to earth, maybe. Um, if you have the notes, I think I have their Puritanism. It's faults and genius. Um, so I've got five reasons why Um, You know, there's some issues that we can learn from. If you don't have the notes, Colleen's passed them out. Um, And then also five reasons why. What I think they did excellent and what they did well. So we'll get to that. Uh, First, as always, what are we trying to do here? Examine who the Puritans were. And then finally, that last point there, really, where we're focusing. What can they contribute? Why actually even study them in the first place? Um, Really, the main thing is that they're so biblical. Um, They're Christian, simply trying to live out the Christian life, oftentimes in a very conflict-ridden life um, in that 17, 17, early, early, late 16th century, early 17th century England. Um, last week we looked at marriage and family. These are just some of those, you know, divinely uh, instituted purposes of marriage: companionship, mutual assistance, procreation, building the church, to raising godly children, God honoring joy, and physical intimacy. Um, that's a really big shift from Roman Catholicism. Um, where, you know, intimacy was just kind of seen as this necessary evil um, that was intrinsically sinful, and that's just not the case. Um, On the back of your notes, I did want to point this out if you have them. I left these out last week. They were on the notes, but I forgot to mention them. They were uh, Richard Baxter's, some of his uh, rules for marriage. I have a picture of Baxter here. Um, Just a few of his points. He's writing towards... Uh, mainly writing for husbands, okay? So he's writing for men. Um, But I think, you know, you can still profit from it if you're a lady. You can just kind of flip them around every now and then. Um, They're still really good. Um, I just wanted to point out a couple of those briefly. I want to do it last week, but I'll hit it here again on that marriage and family note. I like number seven. This is good. I mean, people are, actually, some single, there's quite a few single people in here, actually, but wherever you are, okay? Yeah, yeah. number seven. Here's... Here's some good good advice, regardless of where you are. Number seven, take more notice of the good that is in your wives or your spouse, whatever, right? Flip it around. Then of the evil, let not the observation of their faults make you forget or overlook their virtues. That is good advice. You know, we can get so focused on the negative, and I can't believe they do this, and we completely forget uh, the good that they provide. And then number eight, I really like this. Make not inf- infirmities to seem odious faults, you know, you know, their weaknesses, don't make it seem like this stinking thing that's just horrible, by considering the frailty of the sex, the gender, That's you know, and their te- of their tempers, he's talking about their temperament, their disposition, not like temper tantrums, um, and consider also your own infirmities and how much your wives must bear with you, right? So he's saying, like, before you're like, I can't believe she does this, and she's like, hey... You're not so great either. Um, you know, focus on that. Um, so there's a few more there I thought were really, really good, really helpful. Um, so if you find those profitable, there you go. On the side note, Richard Baxter, he's one of the, he's up there particularly with like Owen um, and, um, you know, Bunyan in terms of most well-known Puritans. Baxter is definitely up there. Um, I haven't talked about Baxter because Baxter's a little complicated. Um, he's a little tricky here, uh, especially there's still a theological debate going on today with what exactly his view on justification was. And uh, I'll just say it's, it's a debate that I am not, not able, I am not worthy to jump into that debate or to wade into it. I'll give you guys a little bit, but um, people are still debating this. Uh, suffice it to say, Baxter was concerned that Calvinism would lead to antinomianism. If you guys remember antinomianism, it's uh, basically living a sinful life. Well, because Christ has fully paid the price for our sins, it doesn't matter how I live, okay? That was his concern. And this goes back to when we talked about justification and sanctification, the importance of maintaining um, that the gospel is both something that God does for us and The gospel is something that he also works in us, okay? So God has done something for us. He's paid the price for our sins, and he's also done a work in us such that our affections, our desires, our wills are changed such that we want to please him, right? You guys understand the difference there? If we lose one or two of those, we'll drift into either legalism, um, you know, trying to earn justification in and of ourselves based on our own merit, we'll lean into legalism, or uh, if we forget what God has done in us, we'll drift into antinomianism. Well, God has paid the price, so it doesn't matter how I live. Um, And so Baxter was concerned that Calvinism would lead to antinomianism. Um, He actually even says here, uh, if Christ had fully... Or no, this is not a quote, sorry. Um, That's what I mentioned earlier. If Christ has fully paid the debt of the elect, then it truly doesn't matter how the justified elect live. They can drift into lawlessness. He develops a response... Uh, that's later come to be known as neo-nomianism. If you're like, what in the world? It just means like a new law. Okay, that's what he's trying to say there. A new law, essentially arguing that justification is not something instantaneous, where we are declared righteous by faith, but rather that justification is something that took place over time and you know proportionably to the believer's obedience. Okay, and hopefully you guys are like, oh, that sounds sketch. Yeah. So that's why Baxter is a complicated person. Um, some people will say he's not saved. <laughs> I don't know if I'd go that far. Um, I do think he was faulty on this issue. He would actually get into um, debates with John Owen on justification, right? We talked about that. They would actually meet face to face, I think, and talk about it in 1654, I believe. Um, and so that's what's going on with, with Baxter there. Um, he's really well known for... Uh, The Reformed Pastor. I don't know if you guys have heard that book. Which he's not even talking about in that book. Actually, you know what it means to be a Reformed. You know, going back to like Protestant Reformation pastor. He's actually nuancing it. He's actually saying the revived pastor. He's saying like the regenerate pastor. So like he's critiquing pastors who he thinks are unregenerate. Um, So that's actually what's going on there in the Reformed pastor. Probably what he's most well known for is the Saints' Everlasting Rest. Um, that was I went through. I think it went through like 20 editions in like the first year it was published. Uh, just a meditation on heaven. He wrote it when he thought he was dying, and then he went on to live. I think for like another 20 years. Um, and so that's probably what he's most well known for. Saints everlasting rest. A Christian directory. This is like a Christian biblical counseling manual 101. And it's like well, I don't even know how many thousand pages it is. It's just like every single matter of conscience or sin he deals with it. Um, so. Suffice that to say, he tries to make a middle way between Calvinism and Arminianism, um, and yeah, it leads to uh, the Marrow controversy, basically, in Scotland, which gets into how Christ justifies people. Um, So there's some issues with Baxter. I'm not going to delve into that. I just wanted you to know, if maybe you've heard of Baxter, and you, um, you know, why haven't I brought him up? There's some issues there. He's not one of the first I'd recommend. He's got some good stuff. Um, especially the the Reformed pastor. The parts I've read is really, really good. Um, But suffice it to say, J.I. Packer, you guys know J.I. Packer? He did, I think, his doctoral dissertation all on Baxter. Like, he loves Baxter. Um, And people have said, like, Baxter would be a nobody if Jim Packer didn't raise him from the dead and make him popular again. Um, I don't know if that's true. But anyways, that's Richard Baxter. I'm not going to talk about him more. His stuff on marriage, on the back of your notes, really good principles. Okay. Moving forward, meditation. That's what we talked about last week. I'm just going to go through these real quick. The practice of meditation, uh, the importance of personal spiritual disciplines, not just being we're reading the Bible and checking it off, but actually we're spending time meditating on it, chewing on God's word. How do we do that? Well, we seek God's blessing. We start with prayer, asking for his help. We select a biblical truth, what you've been reading. Um, You find something that jumps out. You focus on that. You ask questions of the text. You apply, what have I done? Have I been walking in obedience to this text? Uh, Resolve, what will I do in light of this text? This is what I need to do, the next steps. And then the final one, seek God's help. Ask Him. You begin with prayer, you end with prayer. Asking the Lord for assistance to carry that out. Why do this? The benefits of meditation. It deepens repentance, encourages the killing of sin. It inflames devotion, imparts comfort, cultivates joy and thanksgiving, facilitates retention. And then finally, we ended with prayer. There, defining it, what is prayer according to uh, the Puritans? Prayer is a sensible pouring out of the heart to God. It's sincere. Um, really, what they're getting there with sincere is simplicity, right? Uh, you know, we don't need to say these and thous and you know we all we beseech the the Almighty. You know, all these things. It's just like pour your heart out, sincere, true, simple. <coughs> yeah. Th- Yes. So is this coming from Baxter, or is this... No, no, no. This is just summary from last week. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. No. But Baxter would agree with this stuff. Yeah. Yeah, the only thing where Baxter's real wonky, and where you kind of got to parse out what he's saying, is on justification, which that's a big one to be wonky on. So, uh, yeah. But yeah, that... No, this is just kind of summary of... A lot of this is from John Bunyan, actually, directly. These points that we discussed last week. Prayers are pouring out of the heart to God through Christ... He is our mediator um, by whom we have access to the Father. Prayer is a pouring out of the heart to God by the strength of the Holy Spirit, Romans 8. The Spirit is one who intercedes for us with groanings uh, when we don't know what we should pray. And then point five, prayer is a pouring out of the heart to God for what he has promised. We pray according to God's word and what he has said. Um, Anything else? Yeah, Bunyan would say that's blasphemy. Um, So that was last week. All right. I want to wrap up this whole time we've had with the Puritans. We've got about 30 minutes here. Where did it go wrong? And where on the opposite, where did it get it exactly right? First, starting with the faults. A couple of things to preface. Uh, first, I'm kind of critiquing even my own approach here when I say this, but it's not really correct to say, hey, the Puritans did this and this was bad. Okay. Puritanism was not a denomination. It was not, um, you know, a loose association or anything like that. It was a bunch of pastors all seeking to go back to the Bible. Okay, it, It's not a unified whole, I would say. Um, where you do get closest to that is when you get to something like the Westminster Confession of Faith. Right, We talked about that. That's where you actually do have... Uh, around a hundred Puritan pastors and laymen, and I think some guys from Parliament, getting together and actually hammering out, okay, here's what we say, you know, on the whole that we believe, and this is what we're going to do church practice, okay? But you would, even within that, you would have guys that would have some differences, right? I mean, if you guys remember this, did the Westminster Confession of Faith solve the differences between Presbyterians and Congregationalists? No. Right, the Congregationalists still wanted this, and so you have. I didn't talk about this, but actually later on, um, Owen and some others Congregationalists they get together and they draft the Savoy Declaration. Okay, which it is like pretty much copy and paste the exact same thing as the Westminster Confession of Faith, except on like church polity. Okay, and so they even get together and they hammer that out. Okay, um, you know the Baptists come along and they nuance things slightly differently. So all this is to say. Uh, is how one Puritan pastor, uh, you know, viewed something doesn't necessarily speak for them all, okay? And the reason why I say that is because sometimes people will find issues with one Puritan pastor and say, like, wow, look how bad, like, they're just so bad, like, look at, I mean, obviously from this guy. And, like, you see the problem with that? I mean, that's not the way to do things, right? I mean, imagine if someone, you know, they commented on the church today, and they were just like, oh, Baptists they're just the worst. They're all argumentative jerks. He's just like, okay, like maybe, but that's just such a wildly inaccurate, just unhelpful claim. Like just experientially, I know so many Baptists who are not. I know Presbyterians who are sweet people and some who are argumentative jerks. Are we talking about Baptists in North America or Africa? You know, are we talking about Reformed Baptists or Liberal Baptists? I mean, there's just, do you see what I'm saying? It's like, just blanket claims like that really don't really help anyone. Um, and typically they're just trying to discredit actually whatever claim is being made. So don't do that, okay? Um, the same is true with Puritanism, these blanket claims and faults and stuff like that. And second, before we get into this, um, it's really easy to critique people of the past, right? Because we are so enlightened and we know everything today and it's just, how could you ever be so stupid? Right? Like That is a really arrogant place to be, right? Um, I think C.S. Lewis would call it chronological snobbery, right? Where it's just, you know, we just know more because we're enlightened. Um, I would think, actually, it's often reversed. We've actually gotten dumber um, as things go on. So rather than laughing at faults where we go, man, how could you ever do this? Try to understand the context, okay? What made them think in this certain way? I mean, if you transplanted a Puritan pastor from 1650 and just time-traveled him to today... He would be like, what in the world is going on? Like, this is weird, wonky. I don't know why you guys are doing these things. It's the same thing if we went back in time, okay? So just context does matter. So seek to accurately understand the context, the time frame they're operating within, the reasons behind uh, why they did what they did, okay? So that being said, uh, we're going to jump in and critique them. Um, Some Puritan faults, learning from what they got wrong. These are mainly from Leland Ryken. That book I mentioned, week one, Worldly Saints. I'd highly recommend that book if you want more. Where do I go from here? Worldly Saints by Leland Riken. He has a really good chapter there on critiquing some of their faults. Number one here an inadequate view of recreation. An inadequate view of recreation. I want to make sure I'm clear on this. The Puritans were not, they were not against all games and sports, okay? They were against all games and sports on the Sabbath, on the Lord's Day, on Sunday, okay? They were, you cannot play them on the Sabbath, on the Lord's Day, and there were certain games that were out of the question that you could never play, like bear baiting, you know, baiting a bear and then sticking dogs on him and killing him just for fun, okay? It's like, you can't do that, okay? You shouldn't do that. Uh, Also against games of chance, so like gambling cards, and the reason why, I didn't know this, I can't remember where I read this, the reason why... Uh, for the vast majority of them, why it was sinful was because they felt um, like they were forcing God's sovereign hand. Okay? You know, so when you're rolling the dice, you know, and it's, you know, you know you're playing Yahtzee, right? still play? I love Yahtzee. Haven't played in a long time. Jacob, good man. Yahtzee, right? You know, and you're rolling those dice and it's like, man, I got to get this full house. You roll those out, you know, and you've got a 33% chance you get another two and a five or whatever. Well, they would think we're forcing God's sovereign hand to come down in this moment and roll the dice, okay? And before you think that's stupid, it's like, well, they actually have some biblical precedent for it, right? Think of Acts when they choose uh, Matthias to replace Judas, right? What they do? They cast lots and, you know, the chance of the lots. And there's later places, you know, in the old, or earlier places in the Old Testament where that happens, okay? But that's why they would be against games of chance. I don't agree with them on that, but um, that would be, I'm not sure about Candyland. Um Yeah. Maybe. I mean, the cards are all folded up, so it's like, it's not chance. You're shuffling you're shuffling them. I don't know if they're against shuffling. Yeah, I don't know. Um, so, you know, on that, they were okay uh, with forms of leisure, entertainment uh, that didn't fall into those categories. So poetry, music, right? Um, I mentioned this last week, I think. It's not that they were against music per se. They just thought that in the church, it was just to be acapella singing. Um, but they would have music and pianos and homes and stuff like that. You could go shooting and sports and all that stuff. The problem with the Puritan view of recreation is that its defense was purely utilitarian. Okay, what do I mean by that? Utilitarian. The purpose of it all was simply that it made work possible. Okay, the reason why you take a break from your work and you know you play you know some um, game on Saturday or something like that with your friends so that you can rest up to work even harder, to work more, okay? Um, So there's a diminishing of the, you know, recreation in and of itself. Here's a couple quotes um, just from Puritans you probably don't know. Um, This is Francis White. He says, Recreation belongs not to rest but to labor, and it is used that men may by it be made more fit to labor. So the whole point is, why do you take a break? So you can work harder, so you can work more. William Burkett, the true end of recreation is the refreshing of the mind and recreating of the body to make them the fitter for their service of God and the duties of our general and particular callings. Um, A lot of of these guys, I'll quote, are probably American Puritans. Um, By and large, they are. I haven't talked about the American Puritans just because in the little I've studied them, they're just simply not as strong as the English Puritans. Um, I think they got more things wrong and got into some issues. So... um, Not all of them, again, like I said, but some of them. But again, I think there's some truth to what they're saying, but in what you read, you know, the only purpose of rest um, or recreation is so that you can get back to your work. And there's some truth to that, but I would just go, I mean, biblically to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is very clear, right? God wants us to have pleasure in these good gifts that he's given us, right? Marriage, family, um, you know, God-honoring forms of entertainment. You can actually have pleasure in those things, and it's not like, I'm just doing this so I can get back to work, right? So you can actually have pleasure in those things. So I think they got that a little wrong. Number two, too many words. (laughs) (coughs) Too many words. I've already mentioned some of these incredibly long sermons, right? You know, it's not uncommon for them to go for 90 minutes, if not longer. But again, going back to that importance of historical context, these people have not heard the Bible in their language ever, okay? So... I mean, that makes sense why well, you can sit through, especially if a guy is passionate, loves God's word, you know, he's just preaching on fire for, you know, two hours. It's like, okay, like I can get behind why the preaching would be so long. But still, um, I think the Puritans had a way of talking about something to where you would talk about it no more. Um, Riken actually says the Puritans had a way of talking things to death, okay? Or it's just like, okay, I get the point. Um, they might give a little bit too much. He gives an account from Robert Bale. Um, He's a Scottish Puritan, and he talked about how at one of the meetings, I think it was actually one of the sub-meetings of the Westminster, Westminster Assembly, he says, quote, um, They spent one or two sessions discussing the duties of widows in the church, not that we needed to stay so long on that subject, but partly because everything that comes to the assembly must be debated, and none of the debates are short. So it's just like, we didn't even need to talk about it, but hey, we're here, let's just debate it and you know, give all these points. So, you know, by his own admission, okay, it was a little too much. And uh, I mean, same thing with Owen. I love the writings of John Owen. um, But in certain areas, I think he says a little too much, where it's just like, okay, you could have said that. You know, you gave me a hundred-word sentence. You could have done it in 25, okay? Um, So I think they just have a way of just saying a little too much. Baxter even said uh, at the end of his life that he he wished that what he wrote, he wrote less of, and that it was more uh, refined, so more polished. So too many words, I think. It's a good reminder for us, too, like, just be simple, right? Keep it simple. You don't need to keep talking sometimes. Number three, male chauvinism. (coughs) Male chauvinism. I mentioned the recovery of biblical teaching on marriage and sexuality last week. Um, That's not to say that the Puritans were perfect here. Uh, I do think you find examples uh, where they would trumpet up men just to be intrinsically better than women. Um... Riken has a really good section on this in that chapter, uh, giving some quotes there. Uh, I found these last two I found humorous. Uh, Thomas Parker, he was a Puritan pastor in Massachusetts, so again an American Puritan. He wrote a public letter. So he wrote it to his sister, uh, but I think he publicized it just so he, everyone knew how he felt. Um, he wrote a public letter to his sister, uh, where because she wrote and published a book, and that's what he was upset about. Um, and he said, "Quote." your printing of a book, beyond the custom of your sex, doth rankly smell. Okay, so like, suffice it to say, I don't think he wanted his sister to uh, write and publish a book. Um, yeah, he's just, so again, he's saying like, doth, by the way, is just like, uh, it does. Uh, it's just a cool way of saying it, old English way of saying it. Uh, it smells terrible, is what he's saying, so. Hey, I'm fine if women write good books. That's great. Uh, John Knox, he was a famous Scottish reformer. uh, Real early. So he would have been early 16th century um, an early Puritan. In 1558, he published, I love this title, The First Blast of the Trumpet Against the Monstrous Regiment of Women. Uh, And in that, it's like, he's not just targeting women, like just like women in general. Uh, What he's upset about uh, is he's arguing that having a female head of the land Uh, like Queen Mary or Queen Elizabeth, is contrary to scripture. You should not have a female head uh, of the state. I don't know what you guys, I would love if Margaret Thatcher was our president, okay? Uh, She's dead and gone, okay? Uh, So I disagree with him on that one, okay? But uh, I found that hilarious. He goes on to say, to promote a woman to bear rule above any realm is repugnant to nature insulting to God, a thing most contrary to his revealed will and approved ordinance. And finally, it is the subversion of good order and all equity and justice. Okay, all right. So, yeah, he did not want Queen Mary or Queen Elizabeth to rule. So, uh, suffice it to say, there certainly were some Puritans who I think had some male chauvinism going on there that wasn't biblically based. Okay, number four, a partisan spirit. (coughs) A partisan spirit. What do I mean by this? I think they had too many rules at times. I think they thought everything was just black and white and clear. Um, They disagreed on things that they could have agreed to disagree on. Does that make sense? They just, nope, you're wrong, and I'm just going to die on this hill when I don't think they actually had to do that. Um, Presbyterians and Congregationalists, Paedo-Baptists and Credo-Baptists, Believers-Baptists. By and large, I'm not just saying this because I'm a Baptist. Even... Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a big Presbyterian, uh, he makes the point that he thinks a big problem with the division was because of the Presbyterians. Um, he's like, it's the Presbyterians' fault. So I'm not just saying that, okay? Take his word for it. Um, it was the Presbyterians, okay? But just by and large, uh, with the Puritans, it just seems that sometimes they're just hankering for a fight, right? You know, it's just like, I disagree with you on that, and I'm going to write a treatise with 500 points while you're wrong. Um, <laughs> So I think they also just plainly had too many rules um, that we would call legalistic today. It's not legalism in the sense of earning justification, but just rules that, hey, this is what godly people do. And if you don't, this is not godly, this is not right, you might not be saved. Um, I mean, sorry for those of you who are fiction readers, Puritans, not fans of fiction, okay? Especially romantic fiction, that is out the window, okay? Um, Not fans of reading fiction. Nowadays, I'm just happy if anyone's reading any kind of book. Um, but yeah, they were against wedding rings. They were against religious symbols. For those of you who love Christmas, like my wife, I'm sorry, they were not fans of Christmas. Okay. They would not celebrate, uh, Christmas. That's not to say that they wouldn't on, you know, Christmas Sunday celebrate the coming of the Lord, right? And talk about the birth of Jesus Christ. It's just saying that, you know, all the parties and the feasts and the singing and all that stuff they thought was just, you know, wrong. Okay. Um, so yeah. Yeah. I disagree with them on that. I love Christmas. Yeah, the, the fiction thing. So it's yes. Because it's, it's a biblical allegory. Yeah, I don't know how... That's a good question. <laughs> that is a good question. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, but I also think that's why, possibly, why it. Yeah, it's a true story. I think that's possibly why it sold so well and was so popular, because it just, it hadn't really, like, you're not reading any fiction, anything like that, and then suddenly, like, a really good biblical allegory that has entertainment kind of built into it, they're like, this is amazing. Um, So I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know. I mean, I know it was received incredibly well. Like, it was published, um, 1684? I can't remember, actually, the dates. I think I'm wrong. Whenever it was published, no, it was the 70s. Whenever it's published, it just took off. Huh? What about the parables? That's biblical. That's not. I'm talking about, like, what are all those Christian romance novels that Hallmark sells or whatever? I'm talking about those, okay? Yeah, it's not anymore. What are those ones? Francine Rivers? Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Okay, yeah. We,
1: we,
0: we can all agree we should all be still against those types of books. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Okay. Yes. Yes. So why were they so much against Shakespeare and the Globe Theater? Uh, they would just see it as paganism. I also think, I mean, I, I am not an expert on Shakespeare and the Globe Theater, but especially going to theaters, I think it was far too sensual. Um, that would be my guess. I mean, I know, because I know they were against theaters, and they would see it as sensual and worldly, but I haven't delved into what actually practices were like um, in the Globe Theater. Yes, I need to move quick. Sorry. To my understanding, yes, would not go to the theater. So uh, just summarizing this, they would rarely acknowledge like a middle ground, okay? It's either, you know, you should do this or you can't, okay? There's no kind of, you know, sometimes those fuzzy in-betweens, either total acceptance, total rejection. Um, Related to this, there was sadly intolerance and insensitivity to other religious groups. Um, Now, when, when Cromwell... Um, is actually, you know, the Lord Protector. Um, there actually was, you know, religious toleration for Baptists, for Congregationalists, for Presbyterians. The Presbyterians didn't like that. Um, and uh, But even then, you know, you would still have persecution of, you know, the Puritans, again, know what I mean by, I'm not just trying to blanket say the Puritans. Pur- some Puritans would persecute, you know, Quakers and stuff like that, um, which is sad because you know, they were the ones being burned at the stake, you know, a hundred years earlier. And um, yeah, they would not. That being said, there were some crazy things that the Quakers would do. Um, there's an example of two women um, who were went into I'm pretty sure it was, they either went into a church service um, or were just parading around, walking around naked, uh, decrying them as wicked and all this stuff. Just like Jeremiah um, or Ezekiel went naked. Is it Ezekiel? Jeremiah. I can't remember which one. The prophets did interesting things. Um, And so they thought they were doing that, and they were just, you know, the next prophets in the Lord's plan. So they did do some crazy things, not saying you should beat them up or something like that. I don't know exactly what they all did. Okay, I need to move on. Number five here, witch hunts and slavery. Oh, the big bugaboos. First, the slavery question. You notice I put the dot, dot, dot in the question because, to my understanding, and I've tried to do a little bit of research on this, uh, the African slave trade in England really wasn't underway until the beginning of the 18th century. Okay, so the early 1700s. Okay, by that time, Puritanism um, and those pastors are dead and gone. Okay? Um, you you have you know, some successors coming. You know, like the Wesley brothers, John and Charles Wesley, George Whitfield. there are a lot of good you know spiritual um, descendants that come, but Puritanism as a whole. It's not really existing during that time in England. Uh, so when someone says, you know, the, the Puritans owned slaves, own, the Puritans owned slaves. It's just not accurate. Okay. Now, when you come over to America, there that is true. Okay. 17th century, there are examples where um, some of the American Puritans did own slaves. Okay. Same thing though. The African slave trade, in terms of man stealing, um, really doesn't begin to, you know catch fire, I'll just say, and just really start uh, moving until the early 1700s, okay? And then, yeah, okay. So, just to say, um, yeah, I could say more. I I need to move on time-wise. If you want to talk about that more, I'm happy to talk about that. Um, By and large, I'll just say this. They were people of the Bible, and the Bible is very clear that man-stealing is wrong and sinful. So, like, Baxter and William Perkins, for example, write very clearly that man-stealing is sinful. You cannot own slaves that were stolen, okay? But, you know, in going back to the Old Testament, you know, where Israel would, you know, if they conquered people or just other nations like that, you know, conquering each other, spoils of war, you know, kind of like owning slaves. That was just kind of how it worked. Um, and so that would be kind of the biblical defense of why they would do that. OK, now on to witch hunting. OK, witch hunting. Uh, how many of you guys have read the Crucible or high school scene plays? No. Anyone? Really? Oh, Wow. I thought this would have been, like, just me and Seth? I was supposed to. Wow, okay. So, I, I mean, <laughs> I, yeah, I read the book in high school. I saw the play in high school, and then I saw the movie in high school as well. So, so, this is typically when people think about Puritanism, they think about Arthur Miller's The Crucible, which, by the way, Arthur Miller wrote The Crucible in the 50s, and he uses the historical event of the Salem Witch Trials in 1692 applies it to 1950 uh, to kind of talk about, you know, the Red Scare and McCarthyism, okay? So just keep that in your mind when you're like, okay, what's he actually trying to do here? He's not trying to paint at all uh, a historically accurate picture. He's just trying to use it um, to talk about the Red Scare and stuff like that. So, yeah, I'm surprised. The Crucible, typically the Crucible and the Scarlet Letter are what people think of when they think of the Puritans. And because of that, it's just like, wow, horrible, evil. Um, And that's just... A shame because it's just not accurate. Um, I'll just be succinct here. Yeah, well, I really need to be. Um, what happened at the? Sa- you guys have heard the Salem witch trials, though. Okay, yeah. What happened uh, with the Salem witch trials, 1692, 1693, was very, very sad. Okay, it was sad. It was tragic. Uh, it should not have happened the way it did. Okay, but the very fact that I mention it and people go, "Oh, yeah, the Salem witch trials." highlights just how uh, unique of an event this was. Okay? It was not something where it was just hey, constantly, hey, we got another witch today, let's go hang her. Right? It's just not happening in Puritan New England. Okay? Um, it was very rare, and this was a crazy unique uh, event. A couple of historical clarifications. This was not Puritanism in its heyday. Uh, Puritanism um, was very much on the decline um, in uh, New England at this time. A secular historian work that I read on this, he even calls it, um, you know, the massacre of the godly in post-Puritan New England. That's how he describes it. Um, it's just not Puritanism at its heyday. New England was never this Puritan utopia that they designed to set up, okay? It, it never lived up to that, okay? Why? There was diseases. They had trouble planting food. They were warring with the Indians, okay? It was not just this heaven on earth at all. It constantly had issues, Um, Going back to this event in particular, there was a newly appointed governor, uh, William Phipps, who in the words of the same secular historian, he says, quote, would hardly pass muster as a godly magistrate, okay? It's not that everyone is a Christian, okay? In fact, of the 20 people who were killed in the Salem Witch Trials, only a third of them were church members, okay? Um, So, I mean, it's just an interesting historical fact. Um, The presiding judge was the crown-appointed deputy governor, his name was William Stoughton. Um, so I think what people think of the Salem Witch Trials is a bunch of pastors had a bunch of people executed. That's just not true. There were pastors involved, and there were actually a lot of them uh, that said this is not good. Um, but overall, the judges were um, appointed by the crown, um, or by at least you know popular vote. I don't know exactly how they were elected. Um, the governor was elected by the crown, and so was the deputy governor. Uh, before him, this uh, uh, deputy governor, in the previous 25 years, so leading up to 1692, there was not a single person executed for witchcraft, okay? So just keep that in mind, right? Like, it's not, like I said, where this is just happening every day. Um, but when this guy comes, when William Stoughton shows up, where it goes from convictions being around 25%, but even then not being executed, um, it goes from pretty much 25 to like 99% where well, pretty much people are being convicted really quickly here and then being executed. It was not a good time. Um, certainly there were faults. The main problem in the proceedings was that the judges relied on what they would call spectral evidence uh, alone of the accusers, um, where pretty much they're just relying on the visible afflictions of those being afflicted by uh, witches, witches, um, and they're just saying, oh, my goodness, like, it's very obvious what's going on here, um, that there's witchcraft going on. And what happens then is it's assumed, the judges assume, this is the big problem. They assumed uh, because these ghosts, let's just say, are appearing in the form of these women, therefore these women are in covenant with the devil. Like, they've made an agreement. That's the only reason they can take uh, their form. A couple of things I actually learned from reading up on this um, only relying on the evidence of the afflicted, that was a departure from the status norm, okay, or the status quo. That's not what actually normally happened. Um, All the Puritan pastors up until this point, um, living, dead, this is not the way things were supposed to go, okay? Um, I don't believe also that what was going on here was the judges or the powers that be were simply interested in power, Or that there were family squabbles and that was their primary motivation. I do think there was some of that. I actually think, and the reason why they moved so quickly, was because they were afraid. Like, there was fear and actual, um, you know, serious desperation, not knowing how to respond. Um, You know, there were people breaking out in terrors, uh, screaming. There were bite marks, scratch marks. Um, There was um, a lady found with a bunch of, like, you know, dolls that, you know, like she was poking pins through and all this stuff. Um, so I'm actually of the persuasion that I actually don't think it was all you know just girls acting and faking. I actually do think there was demonic activity going on. Okay, so that's just tilt my hand. Um, not saying all of it was, um, but I actually do think there was some of that. One of the pastors, actually the guy who wrote that book there, um, was a modest inquiry into the name into the what is it? Nature of witchcraft. Uh, John Hale. He was supporting the trials early on, um, and then. Someone, they executed a witch, and then the same lady being afflicted um, began accusing his wife of, hey, now, now the ghost is, a, is appearing in her form. And he starts going, wait a minute, okay, maybe what's actually going on here is just demons are taking the forms of other people who are godly, you know, Christians. Um, and so he actually later on publishes, um, you know, um, pretty much an apology um, for what happened, uh, confessing what we did is wrong and actually, you know, a better understanding of witchcraft and demonic possession. Okay. Um, so you do have that going on as well. Um, I need to summarize. It's also not the case that the people living at the time or immediately after thought that this was no big deal. Okay. This was huge. Okay. This was not good. Uh, there was a quick response. Uh, yeah, this, we, we did things wrong. Okay. Um, So that's just a brief summary, because I'm already out of time, and I haven't even got to what the Puritans excelled at, which is really sad. Um, I'm going to go through it very quickly, what the Puritans excelled at, okay? I'm just going to give you all these points. Number one, the God-centered life. Number two, a robust biblical systematic theology. I'll just put them all up here, and you guys can write them down seeing all of life as God's, seeing God in the commonplace, a devotional, practical impulse. So that God-centered life preeminently. Puritanism saw God and his glory as the end of all things. Okay? Um, it's a, what I would say, um, it's not a technical term, but it's a recovery of what I would call big God theology. Uh, it's just a simple way of putting things. Like, God is at the center of everything. He is sovereignly, providentially moving all things to his glory um, it's putting God at the center and not man. Um, moreover, uh, related to this, there's a Christ-centered life. Okay? Um, I mean, they loved to preach Christ. They loved devoting themselves to meditation on the person and work of Christ. Um, Oliver Cromwell, like I've already mentioned, he was the Lord Protector from, I think, 1649 to 1658. This is really cool. Imagine you know, if President Joe Biden wrote this. He wrote this letter... To his daughter, uh, right before she was getting married, he said, Dear heart, let not anything cool thy affections to Christ. That which is best worthy of love in your husband is that of the image of Christ he bears. Look on that and love it best and all the rest for that. It's like, oh man, that is so sweet. Um, And that's the head of the state writing that to his daughter. Uh, So much we can learn from them on a God centered, Christ centered life. Number two, a robust, Biblical and systematic theology. They were biblical and scriptural through and through. Um, there's just an incredible, dense, rich, um, and true amount of theological work that the Puritans churned out. Um, and it's still being read today. Um, they did a lot of the heavy lifting uh, for us, and it's still being quoted, right? So, I mean, like, even on theology proper, the study of God himself. Um, You know, we talked about George Swinnick, the incomparableness of God. Mark even mentioned it in his sermon uh, last week. Um, What's his name? Oh, Stephen Charnick, right? He mentioned Charnick's, um, you know, definition of God, I think. The existence and attributes of God, that's still being read. Crossway just reprinted an excellent edition, I think, just this last year. Um, They've done all that work. Sanctification, right? The mortification of sin by Owen, you can't really beat that uh, when it comes to killing sin. Christology. John Flavel writes... Uh, The Fountain of Life, um, which is rich, rich sermons on Christ. Pneumatology, right? Study of the Holy Spirit. Owen has a whole book on the Holy Spirit. It just goes on and on and on and on. Um, They did so much biblical systematic theology that's still being read today because it's simply so good. Uh, Number three, seeing all of life as gods. I think this is also why the Puritans could be argumentative um, because they saw all of life as sacred. Um, There's no division, and this is true, there's no division between secular and sacred, right? Where you're one way, um, you know, Monday to Friday, but then on the Lord's Day, you're different. No, Christ was Lord over all. John Cotton said, Not only my spiritual life, but even my civil life in this world. All the life I live is by the faith of the Son of God. He exempts no life from this agency of faith. All of life, uh, living in faith. Number four, related to number three, seeing God in the commonplace. Uh, And this is just kind of, if you see the sovereignty of God and his providence in all things, then nothing's random, right? Nothing's trivial, right? That meeting you have with your neighbor where you're talking, um, that was not just chance. That was a divine appointment, uh, as they would say. And then number five, this was the last one here. Uh, And this is really what I was trying to get at in this class. This is where I think the Puritans are just excellent and why we need to go back to them in particular. A devotional, practical Impulse. Oftentimes, Puritan theology today is called experiential Calvinism. I really like that term. Someone's like, Oh, are you a Christian? It's, yes, I'm an experiential Calvinist. It's like, what is that? Um, I think often, I mean, I, growing up, um, well, not growing up, high school, college, I mean, if you talked about, you know, Reformed theology or Calvinism, I just get this cold, dreary, you know, just, ugh, just it's just, you start reading Calvinists and it's just anything but. Um, You know, you especially start reading the Puritans, and you actually understand what's being said. It's like they sound like charismatics or something like that. Like they are on fire for the glory of God and passionate for him. They have this big-hearted, full-hearted, full-of-affection Reformed theology. um, Just that dry, boring Calvinism does not exist. Um, That's why they talk about experiential Calvinism, a Calvinism that's actually lived out um, in day-to-day life, Um, you know, I mean, they would just say, I mean, you're not a Calvinist if the sovereignty of God does not affect your day-in, day-out living, right? Um, it's a really, really good reminder. Uh, on this last point, Owen says, Our happiness consists not in the knowing the things of the gospel, but in the doing of them. Look, you can know all the right things, but if you're not actually living it out, it means nothing, right? If you're the Pharisees and you know God's word, but it doesn't change you, you're not living in light of it, it means nothing. I really like that quote. Our happiness consists not in the knowing the things of the gospel, but in the doing of them. Bunyan, real short, the soul of religion is the practical part. The core of religion, what is it? The part that's actually lived out. Um, And this is where I grew to really love the Puritans. Um, When I realized this, they'll often call it the practical divinity. Um, You start to see, like, their theology changed their lives. And they loved to preach that theology and change other people's lives as well. They preached Christ. Because our affections were warmed, uh, and thereby we desire to obey and live all of life to God's glory. Okay? I wanted to leave time for questions. I am so sorry. We're at 9.50 already. Um, I should have moved faster on the faults. They didn't have any faults. Uh, They had no problems. Um, If you have questions, I'm more than happy to talk to you. The last book giveaway is a Bunyan book. John Bunyan, The Acceptable Sacrifice. This is a meditation on Psalm 51. Verse in there in Psalm 51. David, you've got it. John Bunyan, The Acceptable Sacrifice. Maybe you're thinking, okay, well, where to now? Okay, I got 10 weeks. I mean, we are just barely tipping our toes in here. Uh, Where do you go from here? I mean, there are so many books that you can read. I'm more than happy. uh, What did I say, tipping our toes? Dipping our toes is what I meant. Dipping our toes into the water. On our tippy toes. Yeah, I, I'm more than happy to point you in the right direction with books. Um, a lot of the ones I gave out, I'd, I'd recommend. If you just want a historical look, I've got plenty of those. I've even got, I mean, I've got a lot of Puritan books that you can't read them all at the same time. So I'll give them to you if I know you have it, and you'll read it. Um, I'm more than happy to do that um, if you want to jump in and start studying them. Um, the other thing you can do is just look forward to Pilgrim's Progress. We're going to start that in January. Um, that's going to be really good because that's going to get more of a you know, full-fledged you know, Puritan view on sanctification and living the Christian life. Um, so that'll be fun in January. Okay, you're dismissed.